Thank you. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to see you. <laughs> and what a pleasure for me to hold this book in my hand at last. <laughs> you know, it's been a long time coming. Um, and the first thing I want to do is to say this. This is the fifth book I've done for Nick Hearn Books, I think. Um, they always look after me very well, but this time they have completely outdone themselves. It's the most beautifully made book. Never mind what's inside it. Um, but it really is beautiful. The paper, the fonts, the design, the text editing, everything about it pleases me enormously. So thank you very much, Nick and your team. I heard you over there. Um, now, you won't be close enough to see most of you, but take a look at the image, which is a favorite image of mine. There's a picture of a fellow in an armchair wearing an expression that I think his friends would probably call cheery. Uh, his less than friends might call it a tiny bit self-satisfied. And behind him, there's an image of Shakespeare looking completely exhausted. Deep rings under his eyes, as if he was saying, oh, no, not another 100,000 words about me. Leave me alone. You know, Ben Johnson, Kit Marlowe would love to be remembered at the National Theatre of Great Britain 400 years after their death, but I am a genius who minds my own business. Leave me be. Well, you're out of luck, Will, and I make no apology for that. The book, for those of you who may know some of my earlier books about individual plays, um, <clears throat> contains, again, of course, practical interpretations of characters and scenes, uh, biographical material about Shakespeare, this one, I think, in some ways goes a little bit further. Um, it has a certain amount of polemic in it, very up-to-date, which deals with such things as uh, the government cuts, the RST's new theater. It, um, the RST's new theater, I should say, the RST. Um, it looks a bit at acting styles, back and back and back and back to Shakespeare's company, uh, who I have a theory invented intimate cinematic acting long before time. Um, it has essays and passages about people who don't get much of a look in normally, like Jack Cade and Timon of Athens. Uh, it has jokes. Um, it has my vote for the worst line that Shakespeare ever wrote. It also mentions at more or greater length, more or less length, uh, all the plays. And when I say all the plays, I mean the 37 I grew up with, which includes Pericles, of course, plus Two Noble Kinsmen, which was a particular pleasure to write about. Um, so everything is touched on somewhere in the book, some at great length and some not. And what I think I should do with the next half hour before we have some questions, we are very tight for time, I have to be a good timekeeper about this, is that I should just give you, read you, um, as it were, a series of snapshots um, that I've chosen that I hope illustrate some of the range, though really they primarily apply to the plays and they're primarily about the plays because that, after all, is the heart of the matter. So I'm told in the blurb I have to interpret Shakespeare to you in 45 minutes, so let's have a go. <laughs> the first play Shakespeare had put on in London may well have been The Two Gentlemen of Verona. And if so, he was starting his career by putting a dog on the stage, the miraculous Crab. Crab conforms to an important technique of vaudeville. You precondition the audience and they'll laugh at anything. I recently saw a brilliant French mime who ventured to do impersonations of various types of cheese. There, you're interested already. He gave his camembert a sort of shame-faced, self-loathing, low and squat, as if his pungency embarrassed him. 
The English cheddar was rather upright and noble. From then on, the mime could do no wrong. Yes, we cried. That's a Brest Bleu, exactly. <laughs> oh, yes, of course, a Taleggio. I've always thought that. Well, crab works like that, too. To the relief of subsequent casting directors, the part of crab's master, Launce, is written in such a way that whatever kind of dog crab is and whatever he does is funny. Accused of ingratitude by Launce, whether he just sits there morosely, scratches and sniffs, bounds about, looks at the audience or blankly around, it's equally good. Shakespeare's well ahead of his time here. A couple of centuries later, Crab would have flourished in music hall as a speciality act, the mind-reading dog or the talking dog. And he's perhaps a less manageable cousin of the ventriloquist dummy, that other means of putting words into an uncomprehending mouth. Indeed, the comedy of the vent lies in the cussed independence of the dummy, which may relapse into the same stubborn silences as Crab. And of course, a real dog on the stage exemplifies the mournful warning of W.C. Fields never to work with anything on four legs, let alone, he might have said, Shakespeare's precocious children. Though biddable for small tasks, a dog is not much of a dissembler, and a theater holds as many interesting distractions as a toy shop does for a child. In a recent production of the play at the Open Air Theater in Regent's Park, the fact that a barbecue was cooking throughout the evening <laughs> in the front of house foyer bar led to some interesting chases for crab. Off down the grassy slope at the front of the stage, right up the central aisle to the bar, pursued by launce and sometimes members of the audience. Now here, at last, was the real whiff of an afternoon show 400 years ago at the Rose Theatre, if that is where the first two gentlemen played, where the rich melange of aromatic refreshments, cheese, spice, meat pies, and roasted thrushes must have been at least as attractive to the original creator of the role. Most relationships have fault lines, but the tragedy of the world's most famous love story lies in the destruction of what was already perfect. There's no question but that Romeo and Juliet are ready for and meant for each other. They fit together as ideally as perfect lines of verse. In a sense, they are the verse, emotional content wedded to formal perfection. Briefly united, they lie in bed together as long as they dare, their ears sharp for Juliet's mother approaching the door. Well, that's the excitement of being young and forbidden. It happens in parents' houses all the time. The degree of anxiety that Romeo should now be gone quickly shifts to and fro between them. First, Juliet declares they still have plenty of time together. When he agrees and recklessly decides to stay, she urges him to go, for that really was the morning lark they both heard and no nightingale. Now, this inconsistency is not a conceit. It is, in the brief time available, proof of what they could have become if life had given them the chance. Romeo and Juliet have the gift of becoming strong or weak as the other is weak or strong, each in turn shouldering the necessary weight. Their combined strength remains constant. They'd have made good parents. As Juliet prepares to take her sleeping draught, the thrill of it awakens a luxuriant second sight in her. Once in the tomb, she will suffocate on the smell of death. She will surely run mad. She will hear unearthly shrieks and like a lost soul in Goya's madhouse, play games with the dead bodies. I have a faint cold fear thrills through my veins that almost freezes up the heat of life. Later, as he stands over her in the tomb, Romeo's language sings out, 
He's mistaken, but deeply and beautifully in tune. Oh, my love, my wife, death that has sucked the honey of thy breath hath had no power yet upon thy beauty. Widely separated in the play, these two great speeches enact their relationship more deeply than a further love scene could have done. As they balanced each other's intimate weaknesses, they have deferred to each other's strengths in their separation. Juliet's power of imagining has been greater than Romeo's, but he's made up for it with a special potency in grief. Her delicacy counterweighed his command of their last moments. He dies with a long, protective hymn on his lips. She, hurriedly and without beauty, on the point of a knife. Their misfortunes created a call and response between female sensibility and male protectiveness, between male recklessness and female care. Another love story, uh, less rapturous, but in many ways as profound, exists in the trilogy of plays, Henry IV parts one and two and Henry V. And it is the complex, varying, changing, compromise, but uh, deeply affectionate bond, I believe, between Falstaff and King Hal. <laughs> Prince Hal, I should say, King Hal in the end. Um, just to illustrate it very briefly, I've chosen a couple of sections. One right at the beginning of Henry IV, part one, which sets the scene for where this, as you might say, love affair is normally conducted. And then, assuming we all know the story of Falstaff's rejection and death, the end of Henry IV, part two, and the beginning of Henry V, I'm going right to the end of Henry V, where I have a feeling that Falstaff makes one final spectral appearance. The Boar's Head, a real venue, sat in Eastcheap on the site of London's meat market, just where our King William Street would be built in the 19th century. As one of the central locations in Henry IV, it expands in the imagination, an extravagantly detailed world created entirely from words. There are drawers, bartenders, zigzagging through the rooms, trying to keep up, their work sometimes complicated by a prince of the realm, Hal, playing silly tricks on them. There could be a couple of fellows playing backgammon in the corner. There are regulars and roaring boys, snugs you instinctively wouldn't sit in because you can sense they're a regular client's domain, chances and tarts. There are sidebars called the half moon and downstairs the pomegranate. These being the days before the sex industry was more or less ghettoized, its world has insinuated itself within this one. Mine hostess's main anxiety is that the authorities should not come after her for running a bawdy house. And sure enough, there are upstairs and back rooms worked by the likes of Doll Tearsheet. It's always a pleasure for Henry IV's audience to get back to the boar's head from the court or the battlefield, which is not to say it's a safe or reassuring place. Throats get cut, pockets picked. It's as violent as London itself. Its lawlessness may in the end be as imprisoning as the orthodox life of the court, but for the moment, it seems to represent freedom. There's live music every night. No amplification or flashing lights, though. One of the bands intriguingly called Sneak's Noise. The names are familiar, but try to hear them afresh. Mistress Quickly, Doll Tearsheet, Falstaff and Bardolph, Pistol and Poins, Francis and Ralph, an extravagant brew of predominant humors and commonplace trades. Also mentioned, but just out of sight, a good wife, Keech, the butcher's wife, local officers of the law called Fang and Snare, a rival pub called the Lubber's Head in Lombard Street, Master Domelton the tailor, and Master Smooth the silk man, Dumb the minister, and Tiswick the deputy, 
You can smell the stale beer, the sickly sweet wine, the fug, the illicit ramshackle air of an old riverside pub. Above all, it is Jack Falstaff's kingdom, where he can call for any entertainment and enjoy, apart from momentary rebellions by the management, unlimited credit. And moving on to Henry V. Get my script to behave. Henry V is less a panorama of England than England as a bullet with a single trajectory. King Hal will strip the new play of affection in an attempt partly successful to cancel the past. In this new harsh light, his brilliant career as the scourge of the French is an energetic but a chilling thing. He moves through the play like a scythe. What used to be taken as a skillful wrong-footing of everyone around him that helped him keep his distance as a prince is now taken as kingly good humor. You can never be sure of the man. He both despises and stands on ceremony, makes his subjects nervous, then reassures them. Most rulers do this, as anyone who's met the royal family can confirm. They allow you to be impressed by the distance between you, then affect to narrow it with chumminess. As Hal finally woos Catherine to bind England and France together at the end of the play, it is purely as a political bargain. But in the middle of it, his tone shifts a little. A good leg will fall, a straight back will stoop, but a good heart, Kate, is the sun and the moon. This is a new music, faltering and tentative, coming late in the day. There was a time in Hal's life when a good heart might have been all a man needed. No watchfulness, no strategy, no spin. And I fancy that in the wistfulness of his surprising lines, or rather between them, a fat figure drawn in the russet and sandstone colors of old England begins to reform and stir in his memory. Quietly, the scene begins to change shape. You have witchcraft in your lips, Kate. There's more eloquence in a sugar touch of them than in the tongues of the French council. The historical marriage between Catherine and Henry would continue to be a political football. It was only consummated five years later, but in the play, it immediately creates peace. And Shakespeare attributes that to the ability of a calculating man to surprise himself, to release himself from his own power. This would undoubtedly get Falstaff's vote. And I fancy there's a distant guest at the wedding. Sometimes passers-by or derelicts take a break from the struggles of the open air and wander into a church, chancing on a ceremony of marriage or a funeral. They generally don't disrupt them. As King Hal and Catherine of Valois solemnize their vows in the ancient cathedral of Troyes, I see a huge hill of flesh hunkered down approvingly in a remote pew. Jack Falstaff may have yielded the crow his pudding, but somewhere along the way, he may also have taught the future king of England how to love. Now, a little um, <clears throat> memory of a couple of Mount Rushmore figures who rather unaccountably are beginning to lose their profile a bit in the new world. I'm one of a diminishing band of witnesses to the very different appeals of John Gielgud and Laurence Olivier. Gielgud, a miracle of speed and feeling, in a state of rapture, the language harrowing him like fire. For all his breeding and fastidiousness, I've never known a performer put so much passion into the act of speech as he did. I say that even though I was startled once to be told by Princess Margaret after a charity concert that Gielgud was quite the worst verse speaker that she'd ever heard. 
and Olivier, the volcanic power, the courage, the delicate intuition, the ability to spring any number of physical surprises. Witnesses to them as men, too. On my first afternoon with Gielgud, he courteously inquired what parts I was playing at Stratford that year, before declaring that each and every one of them was unplayable, <laughs> quoting the most outrageous examples of failure he could remember. It was his version of noblesse oblige. I encountered Olivier's variant on this when at the very moment we first set eyes on each other, he noted by way of greeting that I had highlights in my hair for the Hamlet I was then playing, just as he had had in his 1948 film. In the face of such pleasant making of common cause, it would have been graceless of me to observe how much more subtle mine were than his had been. <laughs> now, I've put in a bit of Richard II today because of my great admiration for Eddie Redmayne. And this is an appreciation. Please understand, uh, it's a sort of greeting from one Richard II to another. On the walls of Flint Castle, King Richard II realizes he's losing the crown he thought was his by right, and he imagines his future. I'll give my jewels for a set of beads, my gorgeous palace for a hermitage, my gay apparel for an armsman's gown, my figured goblets for a dish of wood, my scepter for a palmer's walking staff, my subjects for a pair of carved saints, and my large kingdom for a little grave, a little, little grave, an obscure grave. Nothing complicated about the verse. Every line starts a new thought and ends by completing it. And the emotion Richard feels is obvious. The first danger for the actor is using too thick a color wash. Sorrow, sorrow, sorrow. Shakespeare never does that. If he wants someone to be completely overcome, he makes language collapse altogether. Think of Othello's, oh, 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 or Troilus's, false, false, false. Generally, suffering makes his characters more eloquent, as it doesn't always in life, just as falling in love speeds up their brains, as it generally does in life, and makes them wittier than before. What the audience is finding here is that it's in Richard's nature to exchange one fantasy, divine right, for another, the life of an anchorite. Without a vocation till now, he suddenly found it, and his grief has a desperate painterliness. The actor has to match Richard's skill with his own. Within the word wood is a nucleus waiting to be cracked open like a germ of wheat. The idea of wood has to be sent on its way, so that in a flash we see the grain of the dish, the uneven color, its lopsidedness perhaps, just as we have to see the 13 other common nouns in the seven lines of verse. On the nights the actor fails, it will be in not hitting the plumb center of the word, allowing emotion to twist it into an exclamation rather than a fact. By any standard, it's quite difficult. And if I could absolutely say how this balancing act of passion, cadence, and accuracy is done, my own success rate would be 100%. Like serving well at tennis, a very complicated process of coordination leads to a simple, rapid result. In Julius Caesar, Brutus, <clears throat> sleepless at night, is wandering about in the daytime, musing and sighing, missing his meals. We know why. He's planning Caesar's assassination. Being a man, his first line of defense on being questioned about it by his wife is that he's not feeling so well. But Portia is immediately onto that. If he's sick, he wouldn't be mooching around in the garden in the evenings, making matters worse. No, Brutus has something on his mind, and she's a right to know what it is. 
Brutus deflects. It's maddening. He's patronizing her as incapable of sharing a difficult secret. And it's driven her half crazy. She's taken a knife and gashed herself not far from the most intimate area of her body. Her extremely painful gesture, lonely, desperate and purposeless, shames and shocks and does her no good. Her husband, momentarily awed, begins to see what he's done to her. Oh, ye gods, render me worthy of this noble wife. But he's saved from a change of heart by one of those fortuitous Shakespearean knockings within. His fellow conspirators have arrived. Portia is bundled away without a word, only aware that a succession of strangers is assembling in her house in the middle of the night. Her sickly husband seems to have a lot of doctors. So the chance that Brutus might regain his humanity in the face of his wife's self-harm evaporates. Principled idiot that he is, he goes on to kill Julius Caesar the next day, then fails to get public support for what he's done. He has initiated a tragedy in which everybody will die, including himself. For Portia, you can, you can only imagine her life after the night of the self-wounding. The shock of finding her husband with Caesar's blood on his hands the next day, then the flight from Rome, a civil war with Brutus unlikely to become more confidential with her as the crisis deepens. In the end, we hear that she's fallen distract and swallowed fire. Shakespeare has shone a brief light on an innocent bystander, and then, as Brutus himself does, consigned her to the shadows again. But it's been enough for us to see the human cost of regime change to those who least deserve to pay it. Now, regime change, as far as Shakespeare was concerned, came in 1603 when James I succeeded Queen Elizabeth. And I would say that his writing in the new regime underwent a quite complex but seismic shift. Here's just one aspect of it. James I's court soirees sound like meetings of the Bullingdon Club. At one of them, his Danish brother-in-law, covered in wine, jelly, and cake, had to be carried away from a banquet in a chair while the rest of the company was seen to wallow in beastly delights. And here come the king's men to one of them to premiere the story of a mad king and humanity at its most deviant, King Lear. At one point, Edgar marvels at the dark and vicious place where his bastard brother Edmund was conceived. One might ask Shakespeare the same question about the play. From where, in his imagining, did the horrible idea of Gloucester's blinding come? Sometimes a knife is used, sometimes bare fingernails. In one recent production, Regan suctioned Gloucester's eyes out with her mouth. The director's choice is as limitless as the character's depravity. By the time it happens, the play has become a metaphor, a great turning circle. I'm bound upon a wheel of fire, cries the king. Fortune, good night, smile once more. Turn thy wheel, says Kent in the stocks, where the fool advises him to let go thy hold when a great wheel runs down a hill. The velocity of the wheel is the play's obsession. What is the tipping point between a domestic drama that reminds audiences of their own difficulties with elderly relatives and the resolve to put a father out in an almost supernatural storm? The father curses his daughter's reproductive organs and her sister pulls out an honest man's eyes. Eventually, the two women, in pursuit of the same man, will destroy each other. Even so quickly may one catch the plague. A minor incident over a garden fence can lead to a man decapitating his neighbor with an electric saw. 
An imagined slight inflames the mind more than a calculated insult. The very fact of unchecked power makes the idea of genocide quietly entertainable. By the 21st century, we've learned how fragile our restraints can be, how we can be sent to hell in a second. On the day that I'm writing, the television news tells of a man who raped both his daughters repeatedly for 20 years, causing them 18 pregnancies. In the next item, it's reported that aid to Somalia, one of the poorest nations on earth, may have been more or less stolen wholesale by aid workers en route. So what's so strange about King Lear? Coriolanus, like all political plays, attracts impetuous thinking. Once it was regarded as a vehicle for a star, glamorous enough to make hot temper, outrageous prejudice, and mother love quite attractive foibles. <laughs> These days, you'll more often find the hero down and dirty in East Berlin, or the Gdansk shipyards in Bucharest or Baghdad, or in any other conflict in which the taking of sides is all too easy. So, beware the golden boy Coriolanus in a follow spot, confronting a crowd of central casting citizens with nothing between their ears. On the other hand, when I played the part, I think I was too thuggish, not offering much of his perverse glamour. But then I'd seen a lot of perverse glamour in the part in the past. The fact is, there are covert Coriolanuses everywhere. I've been writing this chapter at the time of a general election in Britain, and the Tory grandee Michael Heseltine has just been on a TV panel, regressing the difficulties involved in forming a coalition government in a hung parliament. He addressed the studio audience at one point as, you lords of democracy, an odd variant on the standard politician's cliche that he is just the public servant. The problem was that we, the electorate, had not given the political class a clear mandate, as if the 40 million voters, who were not individuals with differing concerns, but one inconvenient thing, the people, confusing their benevolent rulers who only wanted the best for them. <laughs> Such a man would have had no difficulty in slipping into Coriolanus's shoes. On a bad night, he might even have described us all as a musty superfluity. And it was all delivered with Heseltine's risque charm and made him, not for the first time, by far the most interesting character on a rather bad-tempered panel. Now, uh, the Bullingdon Club, Michael Heseltine. I see I'm doing a lot of, I think, what these days is called topical referencing. So I have to wonder for a moment whether I have the author's approval. What would Shakespeare think of the global recession, the Arab Spring, the London riots, of Fukushima, of the internet? He'd have had plenty to say about them, but it would all be concealed in a place set in Illyria. <laughs> His insouciance was such that he didn't hesitate to incorporate the day's news into a scene if he thought he could get a laugh from it, and then presumably take it out again later. In the trade, we view such references with a mixture of interest and dismay, and they're a nightmare for the scholars. If, as happened in the last World Cup, a goalkeeper's error cost England victory against the USA, there I suppose it would be, in a story set in ancient Rome, perhaps. Thou art as fickle, sure, as are the nerveless hands of England's guard. Well, sure enough, in 2410, some future Professor Stanley Wells will feel the penny drop. Wasn't there a big football tournament that year, the year the play was written? And not only that, but wasn't the name of the erring goalie, Robert Green, exactly the same as that of the jealous playwright who called Shakespeare an upstart crow when he first arrived in London in 1592? 
Anyone who's ever longed for a brand new Shakespeare play in which every line is a surprise should give themselves the pleasure of going right to the end of his career and reading Act Five of The Two Noble Kinsmen. The play was co-authored with John Fletcher, but you can't doubt who wrote this speech in which Amelia describes the characters of the two friends whose tragic comedy the play is, Palamon and Arkite. Personally, I doubt if Shakespeare ever did anything better in this line. Arkite is gently visaged, yet his eye is like an engine bent or a sharp weapon in a soft sheath. Mercy and manly courage are bedfellows in his visage. Palamon has a most menacing aspect. His brow is graved and seems to bury what it frowns on. Yet sometimes it is not so, but alters to the quality of his thoughts. Long time his eye will dwell upon his object. Melancholy becomes him nobly, so does Arkite's mirth. But Palamon's sadness is a kind of mirth, so mingled as if mirth did make him sad and sadness merry. Easy as it is to believe that Shakespeare was taking leave when Prospero broke his staff and drowned his book, it's here in this oddity of a play, like a piano piece for two pairs of hands, that I really see him laying down his pen. Now, just to wrap up, the idea of meeting William Shakespeare seems something like meeting God, but more humorous. <laughs> what we do know is that everybody in his day was shorter, with bad teeth, in constant danger of plague, and you might not always recognize the spoken language as English. Shakespeare had grown up in a market town where everyone knew their neighbor's business, where woolly caps had to be worn on a Sunday. Now he's a Londoner, invisible if he wants to be, in the third largest city in Europe, and perhaps the most hectic, where everyone kisses on greeting and on taking leave, as we're now learning to do again. Half of the population are under 20. The severed heads, tongues, and hands that Shakespeare initially put into his plays until he found he could do it better in words were no surprise to crowds used to watching public mutilations and executions. It was all like the London of Shakespeare in love, but filthier, smelly, degraded, and verminous. However, to judge from the Rose Theatre discoveries, and still more from the sensational Cheapside hoard unearthed in 1912, the jewellery and ornaments, watches and scent bottles that emerged from this swamp were, like the poetry of Shakespeare, of an unparalleled delicacy and beauty. And now he just keeps on rolling, as he will long after us. Renault and Levi have used him to advertise new cars and 501 jeans. Billboard images of Juliet are constantly asking wherefore Romeo art, perhaps thinking they're referring to his whereabouts. whereabouts. Guests on Desert Island Discs are given them complete works to take with them, whether they like it or not. <laughs> his words have been co-opted by politicians of every complexion, a desperate measure since he never expresses an opinion of his own. The M40 motorway announces Warwickshire as Shakespeare's county. Television and the newspapers quote from him, knowingly or not, most days. He remains, despite the financial plight of Eastern Europe, an attractive sponsorship option. So the British Council in Bucharest has found it worth their while last year to bring me to a remote town in the north of the country to do a week of workshops on Hamlet. This was my second visit to Romania. The first was to play my solo show, also called Sweet William. The billboards announced it as Noble Shakespeare with William Pennington. I've heard this noble Shakespeare described not as a writer, but as a landscape, part of most people's lives. Not so. To most people, his words must seem as irrelevant as those of some visiting statesman. 
we say is universal, but really that's a figure of speech. To a large part of the world, he's as unlikely as a square meal. We say he's the great humanist, but he really isn't that either. Injustice is rampant in the plays, and dozens of characters go to undeserved deaths for theatrical effect without a trace of authorial regret. But in any community, with the leisure or determination to clear a space in its midst for storytelling, Shakespeare, an ordinary man, not really an intellectual, reminds us of what matters and what doesn't. And he makes us all talented. There are moments when we can feel ourselves on the brink, just the brink, of seeing what he saw as he pounded the fields to Charcot, weaved his way along Bankside, or looked up from his desk in Stratford to see the mulberry tree he'd planted in his garden at New Place. To appreciate him properly, you have to perform an increasingly unlikely civic act. You have to go out if you can, arrive somewhere at a certain time, negotiate a little with your fellow citizens, and become part of this extraordinary process whereby a hundred, five hundred, a thousand people of completely different sensibilities, experiences of life and senses of humor become that singular organism and audience, all held on the same breath as Hamlet approaches the praying Claudius with his sword upraised, or as young flute finds his form as Thisbe. On a good night, you leave the high music and the astonishing simplicities, the insinuation, the protest and reconciliation in an exhilarated state, alive, hugely entertained, ready for more healthy argument, more tolerant, less easily deceived. And as for me, I think you know what I feel by now. This is a man who's got in everywhere in my life. He's been as present as white noise, which is perhaps what Victor Hugo meant when he said, he strides over proprieties. He overthrows Aristotle. He does not keep Lent. He overflows like vegetation, like germination, like light, like flame. Or as the great movie producer Sam Goldwyn once put it, no less eloquently, fantastic. <laughs> and it was all written with a feather. <laughs> Thank you.